You're listening to the Professional Writer Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Christensen, and I'm here to help you confidently plan, launch, and grow your writing-related business ethically with integrity. You'll find the show notes and a link to join our private Facebook community for listeners at bloggingbistro.com. Well, welcome, listener, to the first episode of 2022. I'm starting off this year by interviewing a lawyer. Her name is Amy Nesheim. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Amy is a corporate lawyer turned online entrepreneur. Gotta love that. And she's the founder of Artful Contracts, which you can find at artfulcontracts.com. And I'll put the link to that in the show notes. Amy started Artful Contracts because she believes that all business owners, no matter the size of the business or how successful, should have access to high quality legal resources without going into debt over massive legal fees. And Amy is on a mission to make the legal aspects of online business accessible to everyone so entrepreneurs can grow their businesses faster and with more confidence. Now, while Amy is a licensed attorney, the tips that she's going to be providing during today's episode are not to be intended as legal advice, but as information to help you better understand the legal side of running a writing-related business. Now, before we dive into the questions that I have for you today, Amy, I have just one is how did you decide to become a lawyer and particularly one who is specializing in what you currently specialize in? I got to the end of college and I really didn't know what to do. I knew that I wanted to help people. And so I thought that being a lawyer would give me a platform and give me authority to be able to do that. And then I went through law school and... I got a regular firm job because that was, you know, the path that was in front of me. Once I started working there and I, I worked with small business owners and I worked with real estate developers, it was like a local small firm. I realized that that really wasn't serving the smallest businesses. It wasn't helping people to start their businesses, start their dreams because business owners were coming to us years after starting. So they had, you know, mm. five, six, seven years under their belt before they ever came to a lawyer. And there are a lot of issues that could be prevented if they had felt comfortable and if they had felt like it was available to them to come sooner. So that's one aspect of it. And the other was that I just hated working in a law firm. Um, <laughs> So I wanted to get out of the long hours and mm. someone else dictating my schedule and the clients that I worked with. And so that kind of combined to push me out of the law firm and into starting my own business where I felt like I could fill this need that I saw for small business owners to have something that was kind of in between doing it themselves without any help at all and paying those three, $400 an hour legal fees that require you to be established before you can afford them. I really like what you said a minute ago about working with the smallest businesses <laughs> because my audience consists of writers and authors, and we really are the smallest businesses. Most often, we're a one-person business. We're a solopreneur. What you said about so many business owners 
waiting for a few years before they ever consult an attorney because we have this idea in our head, oh my gosh, it's going to be so expensive. I think I could just do this without an attorney and I'll, I'll muddle through when if we had made that investment up front, and I'm talking to myself here too, because I'm in the same boat. When if we had made that investment up front, we probably could have saved ourselves a lot of time, a lot of hassle, a lot of heartache. So I'm really glad that you're here with us today to share some tips with us that we can use or that we can contact you and get your assistance to help us as we plan and launch and grow our writing related businesses. The first thing that we're going to be talking about today is protecting our content. This is such a big issue and a big concern for so many writers because we have this baby that we've created with words. We really want to make sure that other people don't steal our content, that they take our book idea and run with it, or that they take a blog post that we have written and republish it in its entirety on their own site and take credit for it, which has happened to me multiple times, actually, mm-hmm. and things like that. So we're really, really concerned with protecting those ideas and those words that we create. A lot of writers are really confused about what copyright is and what trademark is. So it makes sense that people would be confused about it because they both fall under the umbrella of intellectual property protection. So intellectual property is the product of your imagination. It's something pretty intangible that you can't physically touch, but it is something that has been created by someone Copyright and trademark are two different branches of that. So copyrights have to do with creative works of imagination that have been put into fixed form. So that is writing. That's some music that's been recorded. It's not an idea, but it is an idea that has been transformed into something permanent or recorded or put into fixed form, meaning that it could be reproducible. It's a little bit more tangible than just an idea. Trademarks are... A similar thing, but they are solely in the realm of branding. So trademarks Uh, have to do with identifying the source of a good or service. So trademarks are things like the Nike swoosh, the golden arches, and any of the words that identify a brand, meaning the words that identify the source of goods or services. So it's different from copyright in that it's not like a whole book. It's not a blog post. It's just the source of those things. This would be a common comment I see in Facebook groups for authors. People say, I wrote a book. Do I need to get it trademarked? So your answer to that would be no, because that would fall under copyright, not under trademark, because the book is not a word or an identification of a brand. It is the fixed form that you were talking about earlier with copyright. So then that would bring me to my next question there. Okay, so we've identified that uh, writing a book does not need to be trademarked. However, then the question a lot of authors would have is, do I need to go somewhere to have it officially copyrighted? Just by the fact of creating something and putting it into that fixed form, the author or the creator owns the copyright in that material. So you do not need to register your copyright with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office or anyone else in order to own it. You automatically have ownership rights in the material because you created it. The only difference is that if you want to sue someone for infringing on your copyright, you have to have registered it. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. 
So if somebody, for example, took my blog post, like I was saying earlier, and they reprinted the whole thing on their own blog, that would definitely be a copyright infringement. Yes. But if I had not registered the copyright, I would have no legal recourse? You would have legal recourse in that you own it. You can Uh uh, send them a letter telling them to take it down. You can hire an attorney to send them a letter to take it down, which is usually very effective. You Mm -hmm. can file (laughs) a DMCA notice to have Mm -hmm. Google or their uh, server take it down. But what you don't have is automatic damages provided by the court that they will have to pay you just for the fact of using it. If you have copyrighted the material, then you don't have to prove that there was any injury to you in order to recover. Thank you for clarifying that. You mentioned four things that you could do if someone has, let's just say, stolen your copyrighted content and used it. And I have done a couple of those. I have not done the attorney letter, but I did the first step, which really works most of the time where you Mm -hmm. just send a personal letter to the individual that broke the copyright and said, hey, you stole my content take it down now (laughs) or further action will be taken. And I've also looked into the the DMCA notice and I want you to talk more about that because I think that may have gone in one ear and out the other ear for some of my listeners. Mm -hmm. And that's important because that's a really good, strong, easy way for you to take action against somebody who has stolen your content. So could you go over those points again? If, If I think that somebody has misused something that I've written, what are the steps that I can take? Well, first of all, document the fact that they have copied your material. So create a record for yourself and just in case you need it later of when you first published your material and the fact that you wrote it and then also where they published it and the fact that they published it so that there you can see the dates uh, where uh-huh. you published it versus when they published it. So first of all, create a record for yourself. And then reach out. And a lot of times, like you said, this is very effective. You can just write a comment on their blog or send them an email, submit their contact form, whatever way you have available to get in touch with them to just let them know. And a lot of times people don't think about this stuff. They don't realize or they think they won't get caught. And Mm -hmm. so just calling them out can often be very effective. A DMCA takedown notice is a notice that you can send to the host of the website because there is a law, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, that says that the host can get in trouble if a website that they are hosting is posting copied content. And Mm -hmm. so the host is incentivized to make sure that that's not happening. So you can send a notice to the host and also to Google, and they will get that website taken down. You don't stop your content from being copied. You get that website taken down, which is really nice. You know, the irony of this, Amy, is that so many of these people that copy content, and I speak as somebody who's had several blog posts copied wholesale, and I will contact these people and like, oh, I didn't know. It's like, well, you took my name off the byline and put your name on as the author. So I kind of think you knew. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Or they'll say something like, oh, but it was so good. I just wanted to share the whole thing with my readers. It's like, well, then you could come to me and ask permission to share the link and maybe Mm -hmm. a short excerpt. And I would have said yes. But instead, you just wholesale copied and pasted the entire thing and took credit for it as if you had written it. Not good not allowed in my world. (laughs) Not allowed. And the DMCA thing works really well because these people that are taking your content and republishing it, 
they want to get found by Google. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why they're doing it. They want to expand their reach. And if you get a hold of Google and Google takes them down, then that kind of ruins the whole thing that they're trying to do in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then your next step was that you could have a cease and desist letter from an attorney, correct? Yes. After you've sent an informal notice, like an email, you can send a formal notice yourself, which would be a demand letter, and you can send it by actual mail if you can find their mailing address, Uh um, which most cases you should be able to do because in the website footer, it should say what the company is that's running that website, and you can look it up if you know the state that they're located in. Uh, So there's a couple ifs there, but if you can find their address, send them a letter, send it regular mail and certified mail so that you have proof that they received it. And then the next step would be to have an, a lawyer do the same thing. So it's it's a very similar process. It just comes on attorney letterhead and people find that very scary. <laughs> so it can be very effective. So those are good steps to take if you believe that someone has been infringing on your copyright. Now let's flip that around a little bit, Amy. What if... I am taking liberties with somebody else's copyright. In the world of writing, a typical copyright infringement would be reprinting an entire poem or the lyrics to a song or a big chunk of somebody's short story or some most or all of somebody's blog post or even portions of a book. Mm -hmm. And this is a big, big question and issue for authors because we love to quote other sources. What legally should we be aware of there in terms of fair use? The first thing I would say is anytime you are using someone else's work, the best and safest thing to do is get permission because then you don't even have to worry about copyright infringement You don't have to worry about fair use. So that is the first thing to always do. Reach out and just ask. And in a lot of cases, they'll say yes because they want the exposure. They like the recognition. And that's great. But someone who owns a copyright to something does have the right to control how it is publicized. And so if you don't ask, then you can get into trouble for copyright infringement unless it qualifies as fair use, which you mentioned. So with fair use, there is a four-factor test that you can go through to try and figure out if your use is fair, uh, which means that is not copyright infringement. But the difficult thing with that is that there is no bright line rule of you can copy five lines or anything like that. There is no hard and fast. If you attribute it, then you're in the clear. That's not the case. It really comes down to how is a judge going to interpret this four-part test? Uh, And that can be difficult, but I can go through the factors and then you can try and figure it out. Okay. (laughs) We will be the judge, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The first factor is the purpose and character of the use that you as the person copying whatever it is, is using it. So if it's for educational purposes, that's usually better. And then the other way is that if it's transformative or a parody. So if you are making a commentary or a review on something someone else is saying, if you're changing it so that it is now unique, or if you are doing a parody of it so that it changes the impression that the work gives, then you are more likely to be in the clear. As with any multi-factor test, each item has to be satisfied. But if you have stronger points with one, then you may be more likely to be in the clear. 
You mentioned like doing a review. So Mm -hmm. let's say I am publishing a book review of a book that you wrote, Amy. Are you saying that one of those fair use tests that a judge might have to weigh in on would be if I took portions of that book and quoted bits and pieces here and there, but I kind of adapted it or made some of that my own? So when I talk about a review or commentary, it's more that you're quoting it and then analyzing it. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So you are not using the work for the essence of the work itself. You are providing additional information around it. So you're not necessarily changing what the quote was, but you are adding additional context or information Mm -hmm. that changes the perception, the viewer's perception of the entire article. So it sounds like almost more as if I was writing a scholastic paper or a literary analysis where I would quote portions from the piece of writing and then add commentary or my own analysis of it. Yes, but, uh, but you okay. but it doesn't have to be so formal. So for example, TikTok uh-huh. videos where yeah. you have two two panes, one is oh, another yeah, yeah. video, that's that's the type same type of thing. Oh, okay. I'll let you keep talking. Okay. So the second (laughs) factor is the nature of the work itself. So something like a bibliography that is very factual is more likely to be fair use if you copy it because it's, you know, maybe common information. Mm -hmm. Um, But if it's a creative work like a poem or a work of fiction, then it is less likely to be fair use. The third factor is the amount and substantiality of the portion that you've used. So that's what you mentioned about the length. So the length of what you've quoted in relation to the length of the entire piece. So if you quote two lines of a poem, but the poem is only two lines long, (laughs) it's not going to be fair use, right? But one page of a thousand page book might be okay. But again, there is no hard and fast rule of, you know, if you quote X amount, then it's fine. It's all relative. And then the fourth factor is the effect on the market. So is your publishing Mm -hmm. this thing interrupting the original author's stream of revenue or their access to a particular market? Interrupting their stream of revenue or their access to a particular market. So if you're interfering with that by what you're quoting or the portions of their piece that you're using, that could cause you trouble. Yes. Yeah, that totally Mm -hmm. makes sense. I just want to add that a lot of people think that acknowledgement makes it okay. And that is not the case. That's not one of the four factors. It doesn't protect you against a a claim of copyright infringement, but it may be a good factor for you, but it's not part of the four factor test. So I just want to throw that out there. Yeah, that's really good to know because I think that a lot of people assume that would be part of the four factor test, Right, but it's not. Mm -hmm. Acknowledgement alone does not do the trick. It could, it might, (laughs) but more than likely uh, in a court of law. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Good. That's really good to know. Thank Mm -hmm. you for that information, Amy. While we have Amy here, listener, I'm going to pick her brain on some more issues that I know are of interest to writers. One of those is a question about business entities. If I'm forming a writing-related business, should I set it up as a sole proprietorship or an LLC? An LLC is a limited liability company. It is a legal structure for your business. The main difference between having a sole proprietorship and an LLC is that there is a legal separation with an LLC. There's a legal separation between you as a person, as an individual who owns things, and your business 
and your business as a person who owns things. I know it sounds strange to call your business a person, but (laughs) that's the way it is. So a sole proprietorship is the default. If you haven't registered anything for your business, then you are considered a sole proprietorship. And that means that you and your business, you as a person and your business as a person are one in the same. Your money is all together and there is no legal distinction between you and your business. With an LLC, there is a wall like a legal wall in between you and your business. And that means that there is a legal wall between your personal money and your business money, between your personal liability and your business liability. And that's the main benefit of an LLC is that if you get sued in your business, if you have debt in your business, none of that can pull over into your personal assets. So if you face a lawsuit in your business and you have an LLC, then your personal savings accounts are safe, your house, your car, all of your personal assets are safe from whatever that liability is that you have in your business. I love the way that you explain that. That makes so much sense to me being a visual person where you talk about an LLC as being the legal wall between you and your business. Mm -hmm. I have an LLC and I'm really glad I got that in the state in which I live, which is Washington state. It's not super expensive to set up an LLC and it's a pretty straightforward process. Do you have any recommendations for people who are in writing related businesses as to which might be the better choice for them? It is a very personal choice to you Mm -hmm. and your business and your personal situation. So I always tell people to look at their assets and their liabilities. So do you have a lot of money? Did you have a career beforehand and you have retirement accounts and savings accounts and maybe a house that you want to protect? Do you own things that you want to keep? If that's the case, an LLC might be a good choice. On the other hand, is your business super risky? Are you going around copying other people's content that you could be sued for? Are your contracts really large? For example, do you, are you yeah. doing $30,000 contracts for you know huge writing projects? And because those things increase your liability, they increase the amount that your business could be sued for or be liable for. So those are the main considerations when you're thinking about whether to form an LLC is the amount of risk that you have in your business and the amount of personal things that you have that you want to protect. I'm glad I got an LLC because I am a homeowner. Having my bank accounts separate, my business bank account and my personal bank account, it just simplifies things. It makes doing taxes a lot easier too, because it's not all in one big pot. You know, I have my Mm -hmm. business expenses over here and my personal stuff somewhere else. I'm actually really glad that you brought up the bank accounts because number one, I do think that solopreneurs or any business owner, if even if you're a sole proprietorship, you should have separate bank accounts for your business just because it makes it easier at tax time. It makes it easier to understand the true profitability of your business if that's what you're looking for. But if you do have an LLC, then it is required. So in order to maintain that mm-hmm. legal wall, you have to treat your business as a separate person from you. So you have to make sure that you're using business income for business expenses and properly paying yourself from your business, you have to treat them as separate because otherwise the court can take that wall down. The next topic we're going to talk about, so we've got three big topics today that we're covering. The first was protecting our content. The second was business entities. And the third one is going to be contracts, the dreaded contract. 
<laughs> and I did an episode on why you need contracts. So I'm kind of telling you my point of view right there uh, back in episode 68, why you need contracts. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But I am not an attorney. And I would really like to hear what you have to say about the importance of contracts in the writing world, in particular, the speaking part of the writing world, because a lot of writers do speaking to kind of promote their writing-related services. I have been presented with opportunities to speak at different events, both virtual events and in-person events, in which the event organizer has said, oh, we don't do contracts. We trust you. We'll just do kind of the virtual handshake deal and leave it at that. What are your thoughts about that, Amy? I don't love that. (laughs) (laughs) I think that contracts are very important, particularly in the creative space. As authors, you are writing things. As speakers, the content that you present is your creative work. And so you want to be able to protect that, especially with speaking engagements. The contract helps you, first of all, make sure that you get paid if it's a paid event, Um, but it also puts rules around how the event coordinator can use the content that you present at that event. So you might think that you are presenting live and that's all it's going to be, but maybe they're doing a recording and then they're going to put that recording inside of one of their paid programs and you aren't aware of it and you're not Mm -hmm. compensated for it. And so that's the kind of thing that needs to be hashed out ahead of time so that it's super clear who owns the content that you have presented and that you get compensated for the work that you put into that. Who owns the content? Because even if I created the content myself, if I share it with someone else, either for free or for compensation, does that then make it their content? And that goes back to copyright too. (laughs) Yes, that's a great point, especially because I know a lot of your listeners will write for other people or Mm -hmm. they will have editors work on their own manuscripts or whatever documents. And so it's really important to have that all in writing because like we said at the beginning, the person who creates the content has the rights to it, has the copyright in it. But when it comes to speaking, it ends up being more complicated because you are presenting it, uh, but it's not in fixed form until it's recorded, right? And so if the event coordinator is the one recording it, do they own that recording even though you're the one speaking in it? And then you're kind of in a gray area. The other issue there is that if you are writing for someone else, for a client, for them to use, you still own that item because you wrote it, right? You have the creative rights to it. And so you need to transfer the rights to the client in order for them to own it and be able to use it in their business. Or you grant a license so that they can use it in a certain way. I do a lot of ghostwriting. And Mm -hmm. so I have clients for whom I write articles. My name never appears on their articles. It is intended to be viewed as if it's being written from the owner of the publication, not from me. And so I write in their voice. In that case, I have a contract with the client that, I hope I'm saying this right, it kind of transfers the ownership of that content or the right for them to use it as their own Yep. for as long as they want in whatever form they want. Right. And that's the other thing in whatever form they want. So as the creator, you can control 
what form something is published in and you want to make sure that you know what that's going to be. So like we said with the speaker, if you are presenting material and especially virtually, if you're doing a Zoom presentation and that's recorded, you want to know what's going to happen with that afterwards and what rights the person who you're presenting to has to that recording. What's the difference between the written agreement and just maybe exchanging a couple of informal emails saying, oh yeah, that's okay with me or doing the kind of virtual handshake deal? The number one thing is that if you have a contract, it's all in one place and you've both signed it. And so you have Mm -hmm. agreed to exactly the same thing. If you have a chain of emails, there is a lot of potential for confusion. And there's also potential that you have not covered everything in it. So with a contract, there's usually a clause that says, you know, nothing else we've talked about before applies anymore. The only thing that matters is what we've written down in this contract. And if you don't have that, you can end up with someone saying, oh, well, three months ago, we talked about X, and you don't know what the final decision is, and you're not on the same page with the final decision. And Mm -hmm. the other thing is that it serves as really easy proof if you ever need to enforce it. And so you have it right there. It's you can prove that they have signed it and that they agreed to the terms that are written down in that document. And you don't have to go back to conversations or find your notes and end up quabbling with a judge about what exactly you had agreed to, because it's very Mm. clear. That happened to me just a couple of days ago, actually. I had a client that I had been working with long-term, did a fairly large project for this person. And yes, we had a contract for that. But then after that project ended, we continued working together, but in a different capacity. Mm -hmm. And I just realized we didn't set up a contract for that part of what we're doing together now. It was more of an informal agreement, which was a series of emails that went back and forth. Last week, we ran into just a small issue where the content that was being delivered to me that I needed to do some work on was not coming at a speed of which I felt comfortable getting it done in a timely manner. And so I sent an email to the client just reminding them, hey, this is what we agreed to. And I need to have your content by such and such a date in order to get it ready for publication. And the client's like, well, I don't remember that. I don't remember us ever having that conversation. And I went back and looked through my emails. And sure enough, I think it was something I had assumed or maybe we had talked about on the phone. Mm-hmm. I think we talked about it on the phone, but it wasn't in writing and it wasn't in contract form. <laughs> so, <laughs> oops. <laughs> yeah, that is so very common. <laughs> I need to go back and put that into the contract form and make sure that we both sign it and that we're both aware of that because I can't expect my client to deliver something to me at a time that's comfortable for me if I haven't made that clear to them what that expectation is. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a big mistake on my part. I'm going to go back and rectify that. Yeah. But, you know, as business owners, we all make mistakes. And especially when we are working with clients with whom we feel very comfortable, we have a really cordial, friendly, long-term relationship with that person or that company, contracts can tend to fall by the wayside because we're like, oh, I don't need that anymore. I think it's important to think about the contract as a way of preserving that relationship. Because Mm -hmm. if you respect someone and you get along well with them, 
it's somewhat harder once you get to that point where you have a disagreement. It can be harder to manage because you also have these feelings of wanting to accommodate and respecting them and wanting to maintain the relationship. And so if you have that contract ahead of time, it's not something scary. It's a preventative measure and it is just the rules for the road, the rules for the relationship that helps you navigate those bumpy situations before they even come up. And then that makes it easier to preserve the relationship because you're not having to argue about it. You can just point back to the contract, what you've already agreed to, and it's a much smoother process. I love that, preserving the relationship. Yeah, ideally you'll have a contract and it will help you avoid anything bad happening. But in the eventuality that one of your clients at some point does something that you don't like or wants a refund or something bad happens, having that contract is essential for protecting your business and maintaining your livelihood after that. So there's kind of two aspects to it. There's the preventative measure, getting everyone on the same page, managing expectations. And then there's also the enforcement aspect and the protection aspect of what happens after something goes wrong. Do you have any other final tips about contracts that you'd like to offer my listener? Use them. (laughs) Do it. That's good. Do it. Use them. I love it. (laughs) Short and to the point. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much, Amy, for sharing your expertise with us today. Now, tell us a little bit about your own business and the types of legal services that you provide for your clients, because I have a feeling that some of my listeners may be contacting you for some assistance. Sure. So my business is primarily contract templates. I have templates for all kinds of online services and also for your website policies, and podcast guest releases. I was really impressed Mm. with yours. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, so contract templates of all kinds. I also offer trademark registration services, and I have courses that help you set up your LLC and get legal, basically covering all of your bases so that your assets are protected. All the things that my listeners need. (laughs) So contract templates, trademark registration and LLC setup so that your business is protected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Listener, we do want to do business ethically with integrity. That is actually in my tagline. I said it right at the top of the episode. And so I thank you so much, Amy, for sharing just these really practical ideas that we can take away with us and we can think about And like me, I can change some of the things that I screwed up on and am doing wrong and starting today, start doing them better and start doing them right and start doing things more ethically and more legally and with more integrity. So thank you so much for sharing. Again, where can we go to find out more about you, Amy? You can head over to my website, artfulcontracts.com, and you can also find me on Instagram, Facebook. All of the socials are at artfulcontracts, and I also have a free training for anyone who is interested in learning more about the legal aspects of your business and how to cover yourself from all sides, and you can find that at go.artfulcontracts.com slash legal dash class. Okay. I will put the link to that in the show notes, listener. Okay. Uh, that's a long URL. Yeah. So that landing page is for a free masterclass that I offer that offers more uh-huh. information about legally protecting your business. And that will get you on my email list as well. So you get helpful tips there. 
Thank you so much, listener, for joining us today for the Professional Writer Podcast. You'll find the show notes with links to all the things that Amy has been sharing with us over at bloggingbistro.com. Have a great day, and we'll talk with you next time.